Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season three, episode five, The Spine Revisited. We have Mike Reeves with us. Hello, everyone. Glad to be back. So we took a little bit of a break here. I was busy uh, studying for my PSP, which stands for Primary Spine Practitioner Certification Program. It was through the University of Pittsburgh. So I took my final exam here in February and still waiting to hear back about the results. But I think regardless of you know the testing, I learned so much valuable information just from taking the course. And I wanted to discuss some of that on the podcast and kind of revisit the spine and see where my practice patterns and my practice paradigm has changed since taking the course and um, how I've implemented the material. Cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely excited to kind of hear a little bit more about it. Uh, you've given me some quick little snippets about it, but I'm curious to see what months and months of studying just the spine will kind of do and Hopefully I, I can learn a few things here in the process as well. Yeah. Are you still doing pediatrics? Yep. Yep. Still here at my old pediatric hospital here in Philly, treating mostly mostly sports stuff. So I had a student here with me for the past like 10 weeks uh, doing about half of my work for me, which, which was kind of nice, but it's his last day this Friday. So oh, I'll have to treat him to a little burger and beer or something like that after work. So cool. You see any like spondies or anything like that? Any uh, young kids with back pain? Yeah. Uh, we had uh, one of our patients today is a young little gymnast with a little spondy. We think she's doing good. I mean, she's like, it, it, it's tough when you have someone that's like that active, right? It's not like she has like core weakness. She can hold a perfect form plank for like 14 minutes. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it kind of makes you kind of think outside the box a little bit beyond the little kind of basic cookie cutter bird dogs and 90, 90 leg lowers. Um, so we we're working a little bit with her today on like some a little bit more like thoracic spine mobility and some like overhead mobility. Cause really the only time she gets pain is uh when she's doing like a couple of her skills like a back walkover type thing where she goes into it but she can do all of her floor routines you know double twisting back flips and dismounts off of everything and it's pretty much just a back walkover and like a cast handstand that give her pain and the cast handstand is pretty much when you bring your hips up to the bar and then kind of throw your legs behind you and arch that low back to kind of ca- to kind of throw yourself up into like a straight vertical handstand on top of the bar and then you kind of continue your routine so every- nothing is painful except for that and then she gets a little bit sore at the end of practice so trying to play around with a few different things and see if we can get a little bit more mobility elsewhere since she's a little bit stiff in her t-spine and her um, right hip is a little bit stiff as well so playing around with some of that stuff and i don't know we'll see what was her uh, trajectory was she highly irritable when you first got her or has it always been pretty low irritability and you're just focusing on strengthening pretty low um yeah like she she never had to like completely stop gymnastics Got she it. just kind of slightly modified um Got so it. she was having a little bit of pain earlier on with like some of her like beam routine stuff since that involved like a lot of like back walkover type things on the beam. And so she kind of stopped doing that and focused more on some of her other stuff when it got a little bit bad and just kind of avoided the parts of her routine that were creating some pain. So yeah, it, it was never too bad. So got it. Yeah. I have a, a, a gymnast as well that has a spondylolisthesis and she's also a dancer and hers is a little bit more highly irritable. And she was given like a brace to kind of wear so she can continue doing at least dance activity and not gymnastics. And uh, she isn't always adherent with wearing her brace. So she's kind of been on this like hamster wheel of feeling better and then trying to discharge herself from the brace and recurrence of pain. So that's one of those things where can't really control what what anyone does, but you just have to kind of give them the speech about gradual loading and, and not exacerbating their symptoms while gradually progressing back to their activity. Yeah. It's so tough for those younger people though because it's like you you want them to be able to do some sort of activities so trying to find that happy middle ground and not telling like a 
15 year old like yeah you just get to walk around for two to three months with this brace on and not do anything and then oh at that point you're going to be a little bit weaker and a little bit stiffer um so then we're going to probably have to take another you know six weeks or so to slowly ramp you up to get you ready to play sports so really this whole thing all said and done is going to take you know three and a half four months and they look at you like you have six heads so trying to find that middle ground is 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 definitely kind of tough for sure for sure um all right. Well, let's uh, let's get into it, Mike. I want to kind of revisit. I want to try to tackle, if we can, both the lumbar and the cervical spine and some things that I took from from the PSP course, which I found to be very valuable. I feel like it definitely made my approach even more systematic than it was before. And it really helped sharpen some of the weaknesses that I feel like I didn't overly emphasize in my previous evaluation and treatment, treatment specifically and range loading exam. That's going to be like a McKenzie style repetitive and sustained directional preference exam. And what I found pretty interesting, it was an article that I had never read or even looked at, but it actually discussed how completing an end range loading exam prior to a facet exam to see if there's any type of facet joint dysfunction actually increased the specificity of the facet joint testing. So uh, as, w- as well as SI joint testing. So doing a thorough end range loading exam and actually screening that and having that come up as negative and then testing your facet joint exam and having that come up as positive, you can feel more certain that that's the pain generator or the at least the dysfunction that that is driving the pain experience at that moment. Gotcha. So use your end range loading as almost like a like a step one. And if that comes back negative, then when you do your kind of PDA spring testing over the facet joints, then if you get pain there, then you're more it's more likely coming from the facet joint. Is that the thought? Yeah. So what you're doing with the end range loading exam, and let's just say it's localized low back pain and not back low back pain with radiating symptoms because that one you're going to kind of see all right is this a radiculopathy or is this low back pain with concomitant you know hip or knee or whatever pain and i think at that point it's more likely that we go to our directional preference exam because that's just what we think of when we think of radiating pain but actually looking at like localized low back pain and saying okay it's localized i'm not just going to go for a mobilization and stabilization i'm going to do an end range loading exam and, and see if we can actually improve these symptoms with repetitive or sustained movements gotcha and what's interesting is it's not something that i was regularly doing before at least um as systematically as the psp advocates for but i've actually found a decent chunk of patients that fit that subgroup whereas we do repetitive extension or look for a lateral component, repetitive side gliding, they actually end up having decreased pain as we do more and the pain improves. And then we just transition to our motor control, core strengthening and functional optimization. Cool. Now, do you think there's any component of that, like kind of like end range examination that um, almost like irritates the facet joints a little bit, and then you might be more likely to get like a positive? Yeah. So that's kind of like the biggest fear and like apprehension when anyone does the end range loading exam is like one, you kind of feel like you're guessing. You're like, all right, I'm just going to ask you to move into all these different directions repetitively. The patient might experience more pain. They get agitated. And honestly, that's what kind of made me shy away from doing like a full thorough end range loading exam. Because at some point you're going to ask the patient to bend back five, six times one direction. All right, that's painful. Five, six times the other. Okay, that's painful. And by the time you get through your testing, they're 
they could be in a lot of pain. They may not even trust you. It just seems like you're kind of guessing. So there are different patterns that you can follow. And as you start to explore the patterns, you can start to see which patients respond more predictably and streamline your your end range loading exam. So the most common three in the lumbar spine is obviously your extension directional preference, which they tend to respond favorably to extension. And typically these respond more favorably in prone versus in standing. Typically we look for that extension preference in standing. And if it doesn't respond, then we abandon ship and don't go back to repetitive or sustained extension in prone. And it's a position in a direction that you want to explore before committing to uh, facet joint dysfunction. And then looking at any lateral components, any pelvic translocation, lateral gliding of the hips, re- sustained, um, it's going to be sustained side bending or repetitive side bending. And those typically respond better in standing, but you can also introduce non-weight bearing lateral component by having them lay on a, on a half foam and be in sustained side bending for a period of time. Cool. Awesome. So the side bending stuff seems to do better in Standing. standing. Gotcha. Yes. And, that, and that's for specifically referring to like local symptoms, not necessarily ridiculous. It can be both local or ridiculous. Okay. It's more okay. um, discogenic pain. Okay. And whether that, that disc is compressing a nerve root or not is what's going to make it translate to radiculopathy. But okay. you're still looking at the local pain generator as being the, the disc, at least in the low back. Is there, did, did, did they talk about anything specifically with teasing out like discogenic versus like facet and like things along those lines? Cause like, it's pretty easy to know when the disc is irritating a nerve because it just sends pain down your leg. But like when, like the, the differently, you know, when we talk about kind of like an annular tear or like something along those lines, like kind of teasing some of that stuff out, do they go into some, some in-depth stuff about that? Yeah. So it's a combination of historical factors and response to um, the end range loading exam, which we were just discussing. So the mechanical features that they would report is pain that's worse in the morning and difficulty when they go from sitting to standing, actually like getting nice and upright, they kind of are like stiff and hunched over. And they're like, as soon as I get up, I'm kind of stiff and I try to straighten up. And then as I move a little bit more, it seems to loosen up. And then the hallmark feature is a, a painful obstruction. So it's not going to be a pain in the arc of motion. It's going to be more of, I do extension. I feel like I can't go any further and it hurts. And then you repeat that movement four or five times, see see how it feels. And in standing, they might say it's painful and it still hurts. So then at that point, when you get to your prone piece of the exam, you would go into extension again and you might say, all right, how does this feel? And in the non-weight bearing position without gravity, they may respond a little bit more favorably. And even a part of that exam, you may add some overpressure along. I typically go like L4, L5, just lateral to the spinous process for overpressure. And then they might respond favorably to that. So I clear repetitive and sustained extension and standing prone and with overpressure. And at the same time, doing my full eval, I am screening the facet joints. So I'm doing an extension rotation test to see if that provokes their symptoms. I'm doing the P to A spring testing to the actual uh, spinous processor to the, to the facet joint and then taking all that information. So typically what I'll see if they don't respond to end range loading, and then you have a positive extension rotation, positive uh, spring testing for hypomobility and pain, then that's going to take me more of the facet joint route. Gotcha. Um, yeah, well, I, I have one more question I think about the this stuff. So it's, um, you talk about like discogenic, so like kind of like what the, what you were kind of talking about with like 
kind of stiff in the morning, kind of get some of that kind of like end range pain, things like that. It kind of loosens up as, as they kind of go lumping that in, in my brain with our, similar to like an arthritic type kind of presentation as far as like the morning history. Um, is this like talking about like those people that come in, like I have, you know, degenerative disc disease and like things like that, or is it more of like an acute tear type thing? Yeah. So they don't actually get too deep into the pathoanatomy and how the imaging findings correlate with it. And neither do I, I don't like to get lost in the, in the disc stuff, because at that point you're looking at things that haven't been proven as far as, you know, repetitive movement, pushing the jelly further and all that stuff. I, I really try not to get lost in, in the pathoanatomy. I think it's kind of a lost cause. I tend to look at the pain modulation phase, whether it's mobilization or end range loading as different techniques to decrease pain. And then just get people moving again. I think a lot of clinicians get stuck in their extension or their mobilization or their stabilization, and you have to commit to that. There's times where I might do repetitive extension, their symptoms improve, I reassess their range of motion, and then they're still a little stiff, but they're not responding to repetitive end range loading. And then I also do a mobilization. And then it's a combination of end range loading and mobilization that gets them to moving pain-free. And then we just transition to phase two, which is motor control and progressive core and hip strengthening. So that's, that's how I would think of it is as layers of different approaches to help decrease pain and facilitate movement. And that's basically what I tell the patient. I don't get into pathoanatomy. I say, you know, if there's, if there's nothing on the image, or even if there is, those things may have been there before, but you, you have pain now. So these are just different techniques to get you moving with less pain, whether it's if I mobilize the joint or if I help you get into a movement that's painful and help decrease pain while you do that movement. And the goal is to transition to pain-free movement so we can get you strong again and get you at, I always put it in the context of the pain experience. There's things that you do to address the acute pain experience. And then as that acute pain experience wanes, then you start to introduce things to almost like reboot the computer, combat some of the arthrogenic inhibition, the muscle inhibition in the area after the pain experience which is to get the multifidi firing, get the abdominals firing, and then translate that to functional optimization where you're layering that into their task-specific movements. Cool. All right. Well, I just learned some things. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting how you can learn old information that you've already known, but then just have it refined and sharpened in a very detailed way to help streamline your, your exam. Yeah, it's kind of like circling back and it's like, you know, the like the amount of things that we learned when we were in school, like there's so much and there were so many things that I knew in like so much detail, like in school that I may have like written something about that I'll like dig up on my computer type of thing and go back. I'm like, was that, did I really know all of this like by heart? Like it's, I mean, it's pretty crazy, like the amount of things that we like forget. It's wild. So going revisiting it and then in like three times as much detail. Can't yeah. imagine. Yeah. And comparing it to the treatment-based classification, when you look at phase one or stage one, it's really just flexion, extension, mobilization, traction, if they don't respond to a directional preference. And then outside of that, it's active rest. And then really stabilization kind of falls into phase two. So you really either do a repetitive motion and either flexion extension, it doesn't delve into the lateral components. And then you mobilize to get somebody out of pain. And those are really your options. So looking at the, the PSP, or at least the, they use what's called the CRISP protocol. They have four subgroups. It's facet joint, discogenic, radicular, and then soft tissue, which usually is related to the other three as a secondary layer of that pain experience. So you really only have a few options. You either do end range loading, you mobilize them and try to centralize if it's a radiculopathy. And if you have to use traction, if they don't centralize with end range loading, then that's always an option.
Yeah. yeah. And then as far as the second phase, there's really no guidance for the motor control core strengthening. But one thing that I just really harp on is doing the motor control exercises with a good appropriate technique before going to progressive loading as far as like loaded squats, loaded deadlifts, things like that. And oftentimes it's hard to see the value in it because it's so simple and you might have some really athletic people that can probably do way harder things. And the thing that I always harp on is you're physically capable of doing more. It's not a physical challenge, but it's more of a movement control challenge for you. So you can do really hard things, but you can't necessarily do these very simple things while maintaining your spine in neutral, for example. So the big thing that I look at is a lot of individuals, I use biofeedback for the course, course strengthening, and I usually have them increase the pressure in the, in the cuff that's underneath their spine from 40 millimeters mercury to about 45 or 50 millimeters mercury. And that's not like a posterior pelvic tilt where they're flattening their spine. It's almost they're going from like their lordosis to a little bit less of a lordosis. And it's almost trying to achieve like a hypothetical neutral. But what you'll see is once they go into like dead bug and these more progressive core strengthening, they have a hard time maintaining the pressure in the biofeedback cuff through abdominal engagement. So over time, they obviously improve. And then this carries over really well to like, let's say their squats where you might see someone at the gym and they're going into a significant lumbar lordosis to try to load their facets and create that passive stability. And then you see them walk away with that paraspinal tightness and And basically that's because their paraspinals are being loaded in a shortened position and they're loading their facets and not using their core to maintain that, that spine neutral position. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, so that like kind of cuff exercise, I I end up using that one, um, a lot and, and for different various things, right? So if you're trying to work on someone's like lower core strength, someone that seems to kind of snap into a lot of, you know, hyperextension, or maybe I'm working on someone with like FAI and I just want to like improve their ability to kind of enter into like that posterior pelvic tilt, then it's like you increase that number a little bit more and try and keep it. And then obviously if you're training more of a neutral spine, you just do a little bit less. What I end up doing for that a lot of times is I just kind of set the timer instead of giving them like sets and reps. I I, I want their brain to be focused on like the task at hand, not counting reps. So I just tell them, I'm just going to set a timer. You just kind of work on keeping that needle nice and steady as you kind of extend your legs or whatever the heck task I'm having them do with it. Um, and, I, and I just say, all, all, all I want you to do is be better at it by the time I come back. And that's like, that's like their goal for the day. And then you kind of talked about um, the, like doing all like the basic things. And I find that that's like the, like, especially working with like a decent amount of athletes. I find that sometimes I like just assume that they have good control of these things as like a 16 year old, decently athletic human. But I find that like when I, when I make the mistakes, it's when I skip that stage a lot. So even if it's like in like over the course of one or two visits, just making sure you're checking off all like the basic boxes. Um, I feel like it's like 90% of the time when I have a patient, I like punch myself in the head. I'm like, why you you messed up? You know, it's because I skipped those couple of little early things that would have taken 15 to 20 minutes probably to clear or see if I needed to kind of work on them. And I just kind of skipped over them, tried to get a little too advanced. And then I have to circle back, you know, four or five weeks into the rehab and address the basic stuff that I should have checked off early. So, yeah, it's so hard, especially when you have someone that's really athletic or like, I, I get this a lot with people that are like in the fitness industry, whether it's like group instructors or like personal trainers, people that are like pretty like into fitness and feel like they're very in tune with their body and very advanced in their, in their level of physical fitness. And then you start pointing out these very basic impairments, like they can't inflate biofeedback cuff with their abdominals, even, you know, five or 10 millimeters mercury without a significant valsalva. And the minute they go to do a March, 
that pressure drops back to 40 and they start loading their facets. And this is kind of one eye-opening, but also frustrating for, for them at, at the beginning because one, they're they're trying to wrap their mind around one, how this is going to help them. But I think after the frustration of like three or four visits, once they get the hang of it and then we layer it into their deadlift, their squats, and they see how it changes their experience during those lifts, then the light bulb really starts to click. Yeah. And then as far as um, more of the exercise and movement coaching, since we're on it for the, the lumbar spine, a big one that I get a lot is individuals that want to squat and deadlift and have low back pain, whether it's SI pain or lumbar pain. And I think the outside of just the lumbar facet loading with an excessive lordosis, the other difficulty that people have is getting a good hip hinge. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people have a hard time loading their glutes during these lifts. And what they almost do is like this pseudo squat where they end up doing a lot of knee extension to get 50% and then a lot of trunk extension to get the other 50%. And the main cues that I look at is the weight distribution. Is it, is it falling in the back half of the foot or the front half of the foot? And typically when you're getting a good hip hinge driving through the glutes, it's falling toward the back half of the foot. You're getting that nice angle that kind of like, if you were imagine their line of drive is going to bisect that femur where they're getting contributions from knee extension and hip extension. And then also looking at their eyes and chest. If their chest starts to hit the floor, then they're getting a lot of trunk extension on the way up. If they're dropping and sinking into their hips with their eyes and chest up, then they're likely able to drive through their glutes and getting hip extension with maintaining the spine in, in a neutral position. Yeah. Yeah. I had, um, uh, one guy I was working with like a week or two ago, uh, like an older guys in his, uh, maybe like mid forties or so give or take, but he, we were working on a little bit of like deadlift stuff and he was kind of going through saying that he had like a little bit of back pain type of stuff. And we go through his deadlifting and he was going pretty light. He was only doing like 65 pounds, but as he was going, I could tell, you know, like you talked about being in the back half of the foot, just fine. I think maybe if you're a little bit more pressure in the back part of your foot, that's fine. A little bit less in the front, especially with like a deadlift. And yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. But he was like so far that it was almost like he was like, he took it too far and was like almost like falling backward. And if he didn't have the weight pulling him forward, like in front of him, he would probably just fall over backward and have to like step to catch himself. Um, So at that point, he wasn't able to drive through his feet, lift the weight. So it was almost all like back extension that was that was creating the motion and like crazy paraspinal activity to like keep him from just to to keep him from like to to keep the weight in front of him. So he wouldn't have to fall backward and like kind of catch himself. So that's kind of like the the other inspection. The spectrum where you know you tell people i right, put the weight toward the back side of your foot a little bit and they take it a little bit too far and kind of almost like fall backwards so i worked on again a little bit today and we worked on kind of like driving like through like his whole foot and almost like like feeling like you're pushing into the ground with your feet to drive the weight up versus like yanking it up with like your back and, and stuff well, so i think what happens there too is that's that's a really good point because i see it a lot you give like the weight distribution toward the back of the foot cue and then they almost like fall over. So what's mm-hmm. happening there is when you get your weight distribution back, your center of gravity is in your chest. So if you get your weight distribution back and your center of gravity is also going back, then you will fall backward. Um, so these people end up trying to create a pseudo weight distribution, but they're not getting a hip hinge because their center of gravity, their trunk isn't translating forward. So usually mm-hmm. what happens is that as you get into a good hip hinge, your center of gravity should translate forward as you bend your hips. But if you go into a knee dominant strategy and try to keep your weight distribution back, then you will also fall back because now your center of gravity is falling back. So that's just another way where people that are very knee dominant, I feel like try to create the illusion of driving through the the back of their foot, but don't necessarily get their hips involved. Um, So I think that's 
definitely a different comp- uh, compensation that I think is important to mention. So that's definitely a good point. All right. Anything else you wanted to talk uh, talk about, Mike, as far as like the exercise prescription and like movement analysis things that you do in the spine? As far as what I do, not too, too much. We kind of talked about with like spondies, um, kind of checking on like thoracic spine mobility and things like that. So it, it also all depends on the sport, right? So if you have someone that's like a you know highly like rotational athlete, like I play a lot of like ultimate and like disc golf and things like that, which are like a lot of rotational sports, right? Same thing with like golfers, right? There's so much rotation involved in their sport versus like the patient I had today, which was gymnastics where there's a lot of rotation, but I'd say more so it's going to be more sagittal plane kind of like loading so like straight vertical loading that, that that's going to create the kind of bony stress so i think kind of like looking at the different things that might make more sense for the person in front of you like if you have a golfer that comes in with some low back pain you better be looking at a lot of rotational things thoracic spine rotation look at their shoulder mobility look at their neck mobility look at their hip mobility yeah, all thoracic mobility yeah. for sure exactly so check checking all of that stuff and then with the gymnast like, like i saw today i might be looking a little bit more at like what's her hip extension what's her thoracic spine mobility look like what's her like overhead mobility look like when she's going into that kind of like you know back walkover positions is does she have enough um like do, do, do her lats really tighten up when she goes back overhead right does, does she have all that does she have good wrist mobility like all, all of like those little things so she can get into extension versus like i said like your golfer would be a little bit more of like a rotational screen yeah and that's a good point that's actually a good point to bring up is looking at different like functional i guess quote unquote functional screens for rotation and also trunk endurance so for trunk endurance if the if you want to look up the Sorensen test, it's basically sustained trunk extension where you're just holding it for a sustained period of time. And there's different durations that correlate with not necessarily injury risk, but predictive of those that have back pain versus those that don't have back pain based on how long you can hold it. And then for rotational screens, I like to do a single leg bridge, two sets of 10, looking to see if that pelvis falls, if there's any um, lack of... Um, to see if there's any lack of like uh, stability through the pelvis as far as are they dipping while they go into that single leg bridge. Same for the bird dog. You're looking for any compensatory pelvic rotation inability to maintain that like neutral flat position as they extend. And then of course, side plank. Yeah, exactly. It's always like, like during like early on evals with like people and things like that, you have, you have to like always, if you're going to be doing that stuff, like a lot, like a couple extra minutes for it, because especially like me treating a bunch of kids, like they're not going to keep their spine perfectly neutral the first time, even if I kind of tell them to, it's going to take a little bit. And a lot of times they can do it. But if I just kind of like told them, told them to do it, and it kind of sagged because it's easier that way. Like, and I said that it was, you know, they couldn't do it. Like, I don't necessarily know if that's true, you know, so it's, you always have to spend that little bit of extra time making sure that they understand the task at hand before you chalk it up to it. They can't do this. Yeah. Definitely thoroughly explain the test. Say like, this is what you're going to do. This is what I'm looking for. Um, Try not to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another point too, is like, sometimes I'll get these athletes who aren't even in pain modulation. They're not in phase one. So you might do like your facet exam, your end range loading exam, and they're honestly lowered irritability. It's like one to three out of 10 pain. And it's mainly activity or movement based when they do their sport. So at that point, you have to pivot your eval and not look at these provocative tests, you know, screen them. But then if everything comes back negative, don't give up, you got to start going into your functional testing, your movement screens, and trying to create your movement theory or movement hypotheses as to why they're experiencing these symptoms during their specific movements. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move on to the neck. I mean, as far as the neck goes, I'm not going to get into too much detail or explain 
everything that the program covered because there is a large a large chunk of the program is triage the whole idea is that it's creating a program that helps healthcare providers whether it's chiropractor physical therapist physician assistant become more confident with spine care and musculoskeletal uh, triage as far as identifying things that cannot be managed conservatively from a musculoskeletal standpoint and assessing need to make referrals for either imaging epidural steroid injection, medication as far as oral steroid, or even referring to neurosurgery. So that's a whole other chunk of the program that probably could have its own episode because it's just tons of content. But as far as a treatment for the neck, it kind of ties into what I was discussing with the low back is you want to look at your end range loading exam. And with the neck, it becomes a little bit different. It's not necessarily extension is the main direction that you want to go to. It, it is one that responds more favorably, typically in the mid to lower cervical spine. And then retraction is going to be more favorable for the, the upper cervical spine. And then the only difference between the neck too, is you have more contributions from rotation and side bending. So if it's upper cervical dysfunction and it's more of a lateral component, they may respond more to repetitive rotation. And if it's a mid to lower cervical spine, they may respond more to repetitive or sustained side bending. And then you have the component where foraminal stenosis is can occur in the spine as well. It may not always be discogenic as far as radicular pain. So if it is stenotic through the foramina, you may not want to create repetitive compression to that direction sometimes opening that these the segment that you're or the side of involvement is going to be therapeutic. So the the directional preference screen becomes a little bit more detailed in, in, in the neck because there is a few different vectors that you have to explore outside of just typical like extension, side bending, or flexion. You're really looking at protraction, retraction, side bending, rotation, combining retraction with side bending, retraction with rotation, really exploring a lot of different levels. And then even looking at those same end range loading maneuvers with tra like manual traction to the neck, whether in seated or in supine. So you're exploring weight bearing directional preferences for all those that, that we mentioned. And then you're exploring non-weight bearing directional preference for all those directions as well. Okay. So when you talk about weight bearing, that's just like you're standing, sitting there doing nothing. Then non-weight bearing would be you provide traction and do the same thing. Is that what you're saying? Um, so what like weight bearing, or I, I guess the best way to say it would be gravity dependent position. Sorry, not weight bearing Gr gravity right. dependent is, is the best way to describe it. So I would do my screen in seated with gravity pressing down on them. And then I would do my provocative testing to assess for radiculopathy, spurling, and then manual traction in seated as well. So typically I screen all of those directions in seated. And I also screen them in supine with, uh, with and without manual traction. Gotcha. And you can even apply them with manual traction in the seated position. Gotcha. Have, and you talked about um, some of the complaints with like discogenic pain, right? And like the low back of those, some of the similar like subjective complaints that you're going to see in the neck that kind of like super kind of sore and achy in the morning and that kind of block, like end range block that you're kind of talking about. Yeah. So painful obstruction is the key word that you're really looking for with those. And it's same thing. It's painful in the morning, kind of stiff, has to take a while to loosen up. Now, again, that can be also arthritic, can be those degenerative changes. But again, those aren't necessarily acute in nature. Those are more stiff, low to moderate irritability, where acute discogenic pain is going to be moderate to high irritability. It's going to require some type of pain modulation, where when someone has just a a low irritability, stiff, arthritic neck, it's going to be more of a mobility classification, working on cervical, thoracic, spine mobility, postural strengthening. You may not have to necessarily go into that. They might already fall into that phase two, which is address the impairments. 
Yeah. So when you're talking about a lot of these things that we've kind of been talking about, right, with all like the low back stuff, the cervical spine stuff, is this more referring to like more acute stuff, like like what we see with like the treatment based classification, or is this also addressing chronic? This would be acute. Okay. Acute stuff. Now the only time that or the only thing that that really is discussed as far as like subacute, I mean it could be subacute as well, not just acute. But when you start to transition to chronic, there's a lot of other systems at play, like uh, nociceptive system sensitization, altered immunophysiological responses to applied physical stress. So at that point, you're leaving the realm of having someone respond to a mechanical stimulus in the moment. I mean, you can still apply and range loading maneuvers and apply uh, mobilization to see how the patient responds. Because again, chronic's not a catch-all. It's going to have varying features that are very unique to each individual, and it won't necessarily fit a predictable pattern. So at that point, you're just using the techniques at your disposal to modulate pain and promote movement. And typically when someone's chronic, if they do have nociceptive system sensitization where the report of pain is unproportional to the applied stimulus and they're really not presenting with a predictable pattern. At that point, you're just trying to facilitate pain-free movement that doesn't promote or increase fear in the patient. Gotcha. Okay. And then did the, so uh, PSP, like primary spine practitioner, right? Is this mostly referring to more like acute things in general, or was there like a whole kind of subset of it that dealt a lot with like the chronic low back pain stuff? Yeah, there was a whole subset into the chronic and it ties into acute and subacute as well, because part of the chronic is you're identifying with what they call perpetuating factors. So you're identifying things that are keeping people in a pain experience. So I feel like typically when it comes to like chronic pain or even yellow flags, the inherent perception is these people are crazy. You know, Mm. they, they need to go to psychiatry or something like that. They need to be referred to a psychologist. And that's not always the case. Someone with biopsychosocial contributors could be someone whose innate belief is I got hurt and I'm supposed to rest after I get hurt. And they might wait four weeks and try to take it easy and rest. And then as soon as they start to feel a little better, they go and resume their normal activity at the same intensity and volume and their body deconditioned over that period of time. And now they've generated a new stress overload to the area that was previously injured. So then what do they do? They rest again. They're like, oh, you know, maybe I wasn't healed. They rest. And then again, that cycle repeats itself. Now you repeat that cycle over the course of a year. Now you've generated, you know, central nervous system sensitization, altered immunophysiological responses to applied stress. And then that's affirmed their belief that movement and activity is going to make them worse. So they become more movement avoidant. Now that person's not crazy, but they had an innate perception and then their behaviors reinforce that innate false perception that they believe to be true. Yeah, I agree with all of the things that you said. I yeah, think so it's, it's you know, we talked about kind of like that, like biopsychosocial approach, right? And I, I kind of like, I kind of go on like rants about this sometimes when people like say that they're doing like a biopsychosocial. Should be doing it with everybody. I'm like, I'm like, you're just like being nice to them and like educating them. Like, that's not like this like weird, crazy thing that you should be so proud that you're doing. Like, I mean, maybe we should, but like, should we really? Like, it's, I don't know. It's you're just, just normal. Kind of like, you have to yeah. do it with everyone. I'll, I'll give you an example. I have this like subgroup of like women in their 60s or 70s who get referred to me for sciatica. And it's really just hip pain, like lateral hip pain. And the most common feature that they all have is that they are kind of the rock of their household. They have a husband that they're helping take care of who's a little bit more deconditioned than they are. They have kids that rely on them for like maybe assistance with cleaning their home or childcare. So they're really on the go and they're these busy, active women who maybe just got deconditioned during the pandemic or just didn't do much over the winter. 
and then go back to these busy lifestyles where they're just loading that hip in excess in what they're accustomed to. And that's just a social factor that you have to discuss with them. You have to tell them like, hey, you cannot continually stand and clean and load this hip while we're trying to gradually load it back into a state of increased resilience. It's almost like if you have a high ankle sprain during a football game and you try to play in the football game every Sunday while you're doing your rehab, you're not going to get better. So like those are things that are just like within every case that you have to identify. And those are like the, what, what they call the perpetuating factors is what is going on outside of this one hour treatment that isn't allowing them to respond to my treatment. Yeah, I agree. And, and that's one of the things where it's, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out a way that you can make like rehab fit into like their everyday life and, and not feel like it's this like try and make them, you know, participating in the whole rehab plan as like not this thing where like you're telling them that they can't do all of the things that they want to do. And it's it's so hard. It's it's such a hard middle ground to find, right? Because like you want to say like, yeah, just like go hang out, go for two walks a day, do your exercises and like maybe go to work. But they're like, I have all of these other things that I have to do and they're kids and they want to play with their friends or maybe they're in college and they have to walk to and from class, you know, a mile each direction. And so there's so many things. So, and and every single patient is going to be like, just, uh, just a little bit different but it's yeah i mean i feel like that's one of the hardest things for us to do on our job is trying to figure out like because we know like what all the research says and we know the things that will probably give this person the best possible chance of getting better with our interventions but trying to trying to fit that into their individual life is always a little bit tricky yeah i mean it's just load management it's it's just like any athlete Mm -hmm. if if, if they're too irritable and they keep getting hurt in the game and it's like a gradual like nagging thing what do you do you shut them down and you gradually build them back up and they're athletes that's their job And this example always pops up with workers comp is you might be treating someone who let's say is seeing you for shoulder pain and their job is to wash dishes at Outback Steakhouse and they're working 10 hour days, five days a week washing dishes and they show up to their two one hour PT treatment sessions and they're like, my shoulder's killing me. And I'm like, well, there's no exercise or amount of exercise that I'm going to do or any manual techniques that I can do to address your acutely injured shoulder that you continue to use for 50 hours a week. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Um, Same thing for the the example with the woman that like do a lot of things in their household is sometimes I have to tell them like, if if you want to walk a long distance, bring a cane, offload the hip, Mm -hmm. like use an assistive device. Like there's nothing wrong with using an assistive device. If you rolled your ankle and you were immobilizing a boot and someone said, use crutches, you wouldn't think twice, but because it's your back or your hip, you, you don't want to use a crutch or a cane. I know, exactly. It's, it's like such a weird thing and trying to like break down that barrier is kind of tough with people sometimes. It's because you can't see any, when it comes to the spine, you can't see the injury. It's just like your back hurts and everyone's like, well, you look normal. So mm-hmm. like suck it up. But like if your foot's swollen and like you're in a boot, people are like, oh my God, what happened to your foot? Like, where's your crutch? Yeah. And, and we again, kind of talked about that. That's really good. Ahead. I was saying like, we, um, we kind of talked about that earlier on with like the spondy, how like, you know, you put them in like a brace type of thing and see how it goes. And like, I thought it was like, I mean, how much does the brace like really prevent that? Like, obviously it's going to prevent like end range loading. Right. But you can just tell someone like, don't go into end range loading and they're probably not going to do that. But if they don't have a brace on like that mental block of like going out and playing soccer with their friends or going for a run, like all, all of those little kind of like mental blocks that make you second guess doing like a higher level activity like isn't there if you don't have that brace right yeah. and so like obviously it's going to prevent like the end range loading but i think like the, like the 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 mental block of kind of preventing you from doing higher level activities where you're probably more likely going to irritate it than you will be just kind of walking is is probably where it 
where it has more benefit than anything. I mean, do you yeah. have any thoughts on that? Like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. That, that's more just kind of my, me thinking out loud right now, but. Yeah. I mean, the example where I have seen the brace being helpful is for example, the gymnast and dancer I was telling about also does cheerleading. So she's kind of a base where she holds people overhead and mm-hmm. her strategy with any overhead lift, like a landmine, any type of like waiters carry anything like that is she goes into extension. It's not hyper extension, but I'd say maybe 10, 15 degrees of extension and statically loads extension to try to create passive lumbar stability because her core can't support, support mm-hmm. her while she carries something overhead. Um, so she went to a meet and held people up in the air without her brace on and pretty much told me she was like I was in a lot of pain afterward and she was loading her spine in sustained extension with you know I don't know how much girls her age way but I'm assuming like over 100 pounds gotcha that, so that makes perfect sense if, if, if they're going to be doing any sort of higher level activity yeah, yeah anything yeah, that, that requires especially something like that yeah especially overhead. Cause you see it a lot with like, you see guys at the gym doing like overhead dumbbell press, or even with like a lat pull down, like what's the strategy they go into like that big lumbar arch and they just load their facets to create that stability. You see it with bench press. You see it with squat. It's, it's a fine strategy. If you're trying to lift heavy weight, mm-hmm. loading passively is going to help you stabilize mm-hmm. and help you overload. So it's not a bad thing. It's just in high volume, statically stressing your facet joints is going to create pain. It's if it reaches a certain threshold. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, like anything else, I guess. Um, <laughs> but yeah, back, back to the psychosocial thing. The whole point that I wanted to get at with that was um, it's not always crazy people. It's people's innate beliefs and perceptions and like understanding what's perpetuating their pain experience and like how they just feel about things and, and what their systems are. And some of these people don't even have fear avoidance. Some of these people just don't understand the process of, okay, if if I do too much too fast, I'm going to keep myself hurt. If I don't do anything, I'm not going to build tolerance to activity. I'm going to get deconditioned. So I got to find that sweet spot. And then when I do find that sweet spot, I'm going to be a little sore after I do it. I haven't done it in a while. As long as I recover within a day or two, my body's going to repair itself. It's going to come back stronger. And then we keep it moving. We just repeat that over and over again until you get to where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that's a tough, the, the tough part is kind of finding that sweet spot because the more irritable someone is, the more narrow that sweet spot is. And so yeah, it's, a, it's definitely hard to hit. And the older someone is too, the more narrow mm-hmm. it is. Your body doesn't recover as fast. So I think that's the hard part is people get stuck in the mindset of like being in their twenties where you have a very wide margin of error. And that's when people were like, well, I used to be able to get hurt and just, you know, walk it off and like wait a little bit and just get back to my activity and be fine. And they were just able to hit that wider margin of error by chance. And as that margin of error narrows, when you get older, that's when you need a professional. Yep, exactly. And then you have the the kind of chronic end of the spectrum, the people that are probably always going to be in some sort of pain, right? And, and what you want to do is have the conversation. Well, when you were 20, you only had, you know, 10 years of treating your body like absolute garbage. Now you have 45 years of drinking sodas and smoking cigarettes and having 20 drinks a week and not exercising. So all that adds up over time, but you have to say that in like the nicest way possible and then also just meet them wherever they're at. So yeah. And, and those people, people, I mean, I I call it the hole. How deep are you in the hole for you to get out? And like, there's some people that are really deep in the hole. Like if you've had chronic pain for a very long time, like let's say 10 plus years, and you've developed, you know, persistent weakness, central, um, central nervous system sensitization. And not only that, but there's immunophysiological changes that happen. Your nervous system talks to your immune system and vice versa. Your immune system sensitizes your nervous system. So if to live your daily life, it's going to create an excessive immune response. Your nervous system is going to be highly irritable and in pain. It's very hard to exercise yourself out of pain when you're doing like TA sets and having like five out of 10 pain. 
but then also have to walk like around the grocery store for 30 minutes just to live life. Like you're going to live in a perpetual state of, of stress overload. And it's really hard to dig yourself out of that hole. Not to say it's impossible, but the longer something persists and the deeper you fall in the hole, it becomes really challenging to gradually load yourself out of it. Yeah, I, I agree with that 110%. All right. So I don't know how long we've been at this, Mike, but I feel like uh, we should wrap it up here pretty soon. Any final thoughts, anything you wanted to add? I feel like I didn't get into the neck too much. No. Um, did you guys go into like any like cervicogenic headache stuff? Because that's like one of those things where people come in and it like it's one of those pathologies that I feel like I can just I like nine times out of 10, I can have like a huge improvement in that patient's symptoms like day one and just get like a lifetime fan like so quick. Like, did you guys go into any like different techniques with that? Yeah. So that's actually a good point. It actually is going to lead me to another point that I think we should cover, too. Um, yeah, the first thing that, that they looked at, they um, talked about sustained retraction, like a minute or two minutes of sustained retraction. It's like really uncomfortable for those one or two minutes. And then afterwards, it kind of just like releases and they feel better. And they're like, you just got to kind of suck it up and hold that sustained retraction. And the whole idea is that a lot of cervical dysfunction, at least upper cervical, is going to be from a protruded head, like a forward head being on a device or anything in front of you. And this creates upper cervical hyperextension and mid cervical flexion. So if you think about the facet loading example in the lumbar spine, when your head's forward and you're passively loading the upper cervical spine and extension, that's prolonged static loading. So if you imagine like an eight hour workday of prolonged static loading of your upper cervical spine from being in a protracted position, that's going to create a stress overload and create um, compression of the occipital nerve and, uh, and the suboccipital musculature is going to sit short and tight. So the whole idea behind retraction is to elongate the suboccipital musculature, take pressure off the greater occipital nerve and add variability to the loading so that your upper cervical spine is in a more flex position. Cool. Yeah, I think that's good. I mean, that, that's one of the things I've had a lot of benefit with. I know I, I tend to do a lot of that kind of manually at first, and then hopefully they can get to the point where they can kind of do it on their own. Um, I normally do it more repeated versus like a super long hold. But when I do it manually, it tends to be more of like a longer hold. Like I'll have them, I'll do it more of as like almost like a mobilization where I'm kind of like, they're in always in a little bit of that kind of like retracted position that I'll maybe kind of work them a little bit kind of further into it. Yeah. And, and I think that's all, that's like a thing too, where you talk about like, it's kind of uncomfortable. And that's something that I've like noticed with patients that like when they do it themselves, it tends to be kind of uncomfortable and they do that seated kind of retraction. And I, 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 I tend to use the kind of hands-on work as almost like a bridge so they can kind of get there. Yeah. And the, another piece to that, I mean, I, I rarely use the sustained retraction. More of my technique is yeah. if, if they can tolerate an upper cervical grade five mobilization, there's good evidence for grade five. And I can send the article. I'll have to dig deep deep in the archives. If, if anyone's interested, I can send it to you. I think we actually did it in one of our journal clubs, Mike. I want to say it was Margaret that brought it in as an article. Grade mm -hmm. five mobilization for cervicogenic headaches. And the two mm -hmm. mobilizations were an AA flick in the AO distraction or the AO scoop. Yeah, I remember the AO scoop. Was the AA flick, is that like a... Is that a, like a full side bend or is that like one of the like in, inflection or... No, so it's... Um, so if you think about the mobility pattern for the AA joint, it's going to be contralateral side bending with same sided rotation. Um, so it's literally your side bending rotation test and neutral flexion extension. And then you just flick it at the end. It's probably the easiest cervical mobilization to do. Okay. Yeah. So it's super easy. So the same thing that you would do for like your standard kind of like mid cervical, but just without the extension part. Yeah. The mid cervical, you're going to have to uh, lock out extension and yeah. then create a little bit of compression through a side glide. So you've got a few more vectors to account for, but yeah, 
it would be for your your AA would be the side bending rotation test, and then you just flick it. Cool, easy peasy. I feel like I've done, I've done I've done that before. I just don't work with as many necks that need mobilization anymore. So yeah. a lot of practice with it. Yeah. Um. But then going into that, I think discussing retraction versus cranial cervical flexion, a chin tuck, is also mm-hmm. something that I emphasize. I, I see practitioners a lot. They're like, yeah, I got them doing chin tucks, and then they're doing cervical retraction, mm-hmm. and it's it's a whole different movement where cranial cervical flexion is you're nodding your head on your neck and creating elongation where retraction is you're actually going in a sagittal plane of of retracting bringing your head backward and when would you use one versus the other i guess is probably the the next question yeah so cervical retraction is for end range loading like an end range loading strategy and then chin tuck is going to be more to activate deep neck flexor and so your chin tuck you're going to end up doing more so in supine probably um, yeah i, I start them in supine because if if not t- people tend to go into mid cervical flexion but usually when you get someone into a postured position and then they do a chin tuck they are going to get that upper cervical flexion and elongation um it almost takes them out of a protruded position and then you don't get the same like end range loading repetitive like motion into retraction which can be kind of irritable for patients who aren't in that classification of end range loading. Um, So I typically educate on chin tucks and shoulder blade pinches, not only for deep neck flexor activation, but for postural variability. I talk about prolonged static loading. I talk about static stress thresholds. The example I give is if I push through the same point in your hand for eight hours a day, what's going to happen when I remove my finger? It's going to be red. It's going to be inflamed. It's going to be irritated. And that's because when you apply pressure or stress to the same area, it eventually reaches a threshold where it creates pain and inflammation. So if you're loading the same part of your body for eight hours straight at your computer, you're going to have pain and dysfunction in that area. So every 30 minutes, every hour, I need you to do 15 chin tucks, 15 shoulder blade pinches to take you out of that cervical forward head position and out of that rounded shoulder position. It's all about postural variability, not perfect posture. Best posture is the next posture. Isn't that right, David? (laughs) Well... You know what, Mike, aside from you got to feel it to heal it, that's uh, that's one of my go-to mottos right there. <laughs> the last piece I want to get into is some of the postural strengthening. You ever do like the prone TYW series? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I like to do it like uh, it's because a lot of times you see it done on like a treatment table, which is like sometimes kind of like hard. A lot of times I'll do it off like kind of like the corner of like the treatment table. So it's a little bit easier. They have a little more kind of clearance for like their arms without feeling like they're kind of falling over and having half their chest hanging off a little bit easier that way um but yeah i mean i think i think i probably one little thing we can kind of talk about is like kind of like thumb position right do like thumbs down versus palms neutral versus kind of thumbs up and when we might kind of use some of the different things do you have anything specific that you um kind of cue people for or like any specific things that you'll use one position for versus another yeah so the main thing that i found is if someone has usually if someone has like upper or if someone has thoracic spine, like an excessive thoracic spine kyphosis with like concomitant shoulder dysfunction, and maybe let's say some like bicep tendon involvement where any type of like supinated shoulder flexion, like a speeds test type situation causes them pain. They'll usually have more pain through that bicep with the thumbs up position, just because of the orientation of the tendon of where it attaches distal to the elbow. So with those people, I tend to go palm down. It's more comfortable for that bicep. Otherwise I go thumb up, but again, I'm not too worried about hand orientation. More what I've been doing a lot of is facilitating scapular position prior to lifting the arms to improve the link tension relationship of the periscapular musculature. Because if you imagine someone's really rounded out, those mid traps, those low traps are all stretched out. And if you have them go into the lift, they're just going to get all upper trap where if you have them almost like manually reposition their, their, uh, shoulder blade or their scapula, 
that's going to improve the link tension relationship for those muscles and actually help them contract when they go to lift. Yeah. That's, that, I do that more on like uh, mat. Normally I'll have them like laying flat on like their belly right. forehead on a towel. So they have something to kind of keep pressure into and then do kind of the end range. Let's say, yeah, no, yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, cool. All right. Anything else? I feel like that covers that end. I feel like I really left us hanging on the cervical spine with the end range loading stuff, but it gets in depth. So maybe we should just save that for a different, different day. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. Mike, um, did you want to talk a little bit about this new Frisbee platform that you developed before we end? Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. So while David was off learning how to be a spine expert, um, I decided to take on a little venture of my own and essentially uh, create like uh, injury prevention program for ultimate Frisbee players. Uh, so it's called Inform Ultimate. And yeah, so like pretty much the, the initial goal was I had no idea what it was going to be. And I just started kind of diving into um, like the Frisbee research and the injury prevention research for all sorts of things. And it initially started, I was thinking about making a like continuing ed course for physical therapists on um kind of like injury prevention and rehab strategies for like specific to ultimate players uh and then i kind of got bored of that so i thought maybe i'd make course for like frisbee players on like injury prevention uh and then i started recording some videos for that and realized it was super boring and no one would want to listen to me talk about it for a while and so then i kind of like completely changed gears and just decided to make like a start to finish four month kind of like off season leading into the season uh like kind of strength and conditioning uh injury prevention program and leading into like, you know, a couple of months of in-season kind of uh, programming to kind of uh, rotate through. So it's all kind of app-based on people's phones. Yeah, and it was a lot of work, but it's like finally up and running. I have a couple of friends on board uh, with that as well. So myself and one of my other buddies is an athletic trainer that's doing it with me. And so we can, we're providing some athletic training uh, work for uh, a couple of the local tournaments coming up. Yeah, another buddy on is like uh, one of the, kind of like uh, big names in Frisbee, kind of like in like the Philadelphia area. He's a strength and conditioning coach. He's going to be helping out, taking on some, taking on some clients whenever it kind of grows a little bit too. So yeah, a lot of work pretty much is making like a off-season strength and conditioning program for Frisbee players called Inform Ultimate. So if you have any, uh, if you have any Frisbee players in your practice or in your life, feel free to send them my way. You can find us online, informultimate.com or uh, Instagram at inform underscore ultimate. Cool, man. That'll be exciting. Yeah, you'll definitely, I'm sure you'll keep us updated as we continue. And for all the listeners, we promise to try to finish season three in a timely fashion. I know we have definitely slowed down with just the craziness of all the different things we've had going on, but we'll at least finish this uh, eight episode season and then hopefully plan some good content for, for season four. And I wish to see this whole platform grow maybe into not necessarily a continuing education platform, but maybe a research review and interpretation and critical appraisal where it'll be a good resource for people to uh, just continue learning and improve their clinical practice. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks for joining us guys. If you're enjoying the content, please leave us a five-star review on Apple podcast. Thanks guys.